Well, we are looking at Matthew 22. We, we looked at the first part last week. We're going to look at some other passages uh, there today. If you want to go ahead and turn there. And I was, uh, as I was preparing the sermon, I was reminded of a professor of mine that I had a, a, a long time ago. He was a very uh, brilliant man, and he knew it. <laughs> and he also took every opportunity to make sure that we as his students knew it. And he also had this self-proclaimed mission of making sure that he put arrogant students in his class and gave them a good humbling. And he did both of these things through using questions. For example, if you were in class and he was lecturing in the middle of the lecture, he asked a question, you knew that he was going to answer his own question and show you how smart he was, okay? But if you made a comment about during the lecture or asked a question during the lecture and he responded with a question, either one of two things was going to happen. Either what you said was about to be shredded to pieces or you were going to be shown how you just asked the silliest question that anybody on the face of the earth could possibly ask in the classroom, right? Well, to our, I hate to, to our joy, I hate to admit this, but to our joy, one day the tables were turned on this professor. Because here he was lecturing, in the middle of the lecture he asked a question. He had just quoted from one of the classics, I can't remember what it was now. But he had just quoted from it, and he, and he stood up there and he said, who said that? And to his surprise, my friend who was sitting directly behind me gave the answer. I don't know if it was Plato or Dickens, I'm not sure what it was, but he gave the answer. And the professor was very surprised, but he, he regained his composure. And he said, well, you know what they say about the classics. Everyone quotes them, but no one reads them. And then I heard my friend again say, who said that? <laughs> And we just waited. <laughs> and again, the professor was kind of taken aback, but he, he kind of puffed his chest out a little bit and said, I said that. To which my friend very humbly said, well, actually, Mark Twain said that. <laughs> so you can imagine the gasp that took place in the classroom as we saw something that had never happened before and probably never happened again, our professor completely and utterly speechless and totally red in the face, right? Now, the, what's the moral of this story? The moral of the story is, is that sometimes asking questions for the wrong reasons will get you in a heap of trouble. And sometimes your, your questioners will turn the table on you. You see, this is what happened to the Pharisees and the other religious leaders in the rest of chapter 22. Like I said, we talked about the parable, the wedding feast last week. The rest of the chapter is kind of divided into four rounds, okay, of Jesus going at it with various religious leaders. Round one involves the Pharisees, their disciples, and asking Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar. Round two is the Sadducees asking about the resurrection. Round three is about a lawyer asking Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And then round four, Jesus turns the tables, and he's the one asking the questions. And he asks the questions, whose son is the Christ? Now, Jesus' questioners lose all four rounds by unanimous decision, okay? And sadly, even though they're KO'd by the kingdom shock of Jesus, they aren't overcome by kingdom awe. 
Now this morning we're looking at rounds one and four today. That's how we're splitting up this passage, which are the exchanges that Jesus has with the Pharisees or their disciples. So if you will, turn to your Bibles to Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22, and then we'll jump down to verses 41 through 46. But before we start, here's a couple of questions for us to think about, okay? The first one is, what motivates your rendering to God? And the second one is, what do you say about the Christ? Please read with me. Verse 15, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, that is Jesus, in his talk. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. And turning to 41 through 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet? If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Please pray with me. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to share from your word. I pray uh, that even now you would be equipping me for this task. I pray that nothing would come out of my mouth that contradicts your word. And I pray for all of us, including myself, that you would be softening our hearts and preparing it to hear the truth of your word and to apply it and to be changed by it. And I pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we're looking at 15 through 20, 22 first. We find out in verse 15 that the Pharisees are plotting against Jesus, trying to lay a trap for him. And we really shouldn't be surprised by this, right? Because we know how much they hate Jesus. I mean, we've seen them be offended by who Jesus hangs out with, the prostitutes and the tax collectors and other sinners. He's disrespected the, the traditions and teaching of the elders. The Pharisees are jealous of his popularity among the people. They have rejected his claims of authority. They publicly, Jesus has publicly humiliated them by exposing their hypocrisy and their sin. And he's also publicly declared God's judgment against them. As early as Matthew 12, we find out that they are already plotting the destruction of Jesus. So here again, we see them plotting, trying to entangle Jesus in his words. And they've upped the ante this time, too, because they've included somebody else in the conspiracy, the Herodians. Now, I don't know if you know who the Herodians are, but they're kind, of, they're kind of these Jews who are kind of royalists, okay? Because they supported King Herod and his sons, the, the Herodian kings. Now, just a little quick Herodian history lesson here. Herod was put in power by the, by the Romans, I'm going to say around 34 B.C. 
and he was given rule over Palestine. And when he died, the kingdom was divided into three parts, and each part was given to one of his sons. So the Herodians aligned themselves with the Herodian kings, okay? They supported them, but the other Jews despised them because Jews had no love for Herod, let me tell you. First of all, he wasn't a Jew, he was an Edomite. And the Romans had put an Edomite ruling over them. Number two, he ruled in the name of Rome, their foreign pagan oppressor. And I wish we could go into some of the stories, but there's a history of bad blood between the Herodian family and, and the rest of the Jews in Palestine. So they had no love for people who supported Herod. And the other Jews saw the Herodians as being those who by default were sympathetic to Rome. So long story short, the Pharisees hated the Herodians and the Herodians despised the Pharisees. So the question comes up is why are these two groups working together? And the answer really exposes the wickedness of their plan, you see, because both groups want Jesus gone. I mean, the, the Pharisees have already talked about their reasons, but the Herodians had their reasons too, you see, because they had a vested interest in maintaining the peace and the status quo, and Jesus is threatening that, okay? I mean, this region has a history of revolutions and rebels and insurrections, and here we have Jesus stirring it up, and the last thing the Herodians want is to give Rome a reason to have another military crackdown and seize power in the area. So they both have their reasons. So even though they hate each other, these two groups put aside their differences to pursue their common goal, and that is the destruction of Jesus. Now, verse 15 tells us that the Pharisees concoct this plan to get Jesus, and then they put it into action. And they send representatives, their disciples, with the Herodians to ask Jesus a loaded question. I was thinking about this. Why do they send their disciples? Why don't they just go themselves, you know? And we're not really sure. I mean, I'm tempted to think that they were just plain cowards, right? They said, oh, we'll send our disciples. We won't mess around with Jesus anymore, right? But it could be, too, that maybe if their plan actually works, they don't want to be directly associated with it because that would hurt them in the eyes of the people. Or maybe they thought that Jesus would lower his guard more if they sent their disciples instead of going themselves. I mean, whatever the reason, they send their disciples with the Herodians to try and trip Jesus up. And here's, here's the game plan, you see. First, they try and set him up, and then they, sh then they hit him with the loaded question. They try to set him up by flattering him. If you look at verse 16, they start off by saying, teacher. Now, right there you know that they're full of baloney, okay? Because these are the people who despise Jesus for his lack of professional pedigree. He doesn't have professional rabbinic training, but he's passing himself off as a rabbi. They have already rejected his claims to authority, and to make matters worse, he doesn't appeal to, to the ones before him for authority, he appeals to himself for authority. So when they say teacher, you know right away that this is a bunch of baloney. They say, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. Really? You do? I mean, is this why you ascribe his miracles to Satan? Is this why you charged him with making his disciples break the Sabbath? Is, you know, if you really believe this, guys, then why aren't you following him too? And then they say, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Well, you guys can certainly testify to the truth of that, can't you, right? I mean, Jesus certainly hasn't pulled any punches with the Pharisees. In fact, 
That's the reason why you hate him and why you're seeking to destroy him. You see, this is all a setup. It's all set up to try and get Jesus in a vulnerable position. They're flattering him to get him to lower his guard. And that's the, the irony of all this is that everything they say is absolutely true. Everything they say about Jesus is true. They don't believe it. Their intentions are evil, but everything they say is true. And that's a point of application for us. And that is that sin sometimes hides behind truthfulness. And let me ask you, maybe you're a kind of person who takes pride in being direct or kind of a tell-it-like-it-is kind of a person. You know, people always know what you think or where you stand or what you think about them. But I want to ask you just, just pastorally, is it, is it possible that maybe you get some kind of warped sense of power from being that way? That maybe you, you enjoy seeing the awkward response of someone when, you, when you're that way with them. You know, what if your truthfulness, your directness, really disguises an uncaring or a selfish heart in regards to the hurtful impact of your words? You see, sometimes sin hides behind truthfulness. You know, how many times, let me ask you this, how many times have you told another talked about another person and told that person something truthful about somebody else, right? And it really wasn't sharing out of concern for that person. You shared it because you, frankly, like to enjoy passing on the latest juicy tidbit, right? Or maybe you're trying to harm the reputation of the person that you're sharing that truth about. Or maybe you're just trying to win or strengthen the friendship with the person that you're sharing that gossip with. See, sometimes sin hides behind truthfulness. And let's move to another sphere, okay? What about what you write on your blog or post on Facebook or the comments you leave on other people's blogs or Facebook pages? You, know, you view yourself as standing up for the truth, but is it really more about you tearing somebody else down to make yourself feel better? You know, are you really trying to win the other person over or is it more about the challenge of defeating another opponent, the rush of winning a debate? See, right now, I've, I've gotten all up in some of your grills this morning, right? And there are some of you who are probably pretty ticked at me right now because you think I'm specifically targeting you. And, and nothing could be further from the truth. I'm not targeting you. I'm targeting me, you see, because here's, here's a little secret about a pastor's preaching, okay? I, I know you because I know me, and I do the same things. I do, in fact, I even do worse things. You know, I wish you could see, maybe I don't wish you could see, but I wish you could see sometimes when Christine and I have an argument. You know, when it, and the arguments probably happen because she has lovingly confronted me about some sinful attitude or behavior or something like that, and what do I do? Well, of course, I humbly repent and ask for her forgiveness. <laughs> no. A lot of times, I use the truth as a weapon, the truth of her struggles or her weaknesses or her sins, and I aim it right for her jugular because I want to take her out. So, sometimes sin hides behind truthfulness. 
Will you join me in repenting for using the truth as a weapon? Will you run to Jesus and ask him to forgive you and to change your heart and to help you speak along with me, speak the truth in love? Will you join me in that this morning? You see, the Pharisees' disciples spoke truth, but it wasn't in love. They were trying to set Jesus up. And once they tried to set him up, then they dropped the bomb, okay? Verse 17, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And notice the word they use here, lawful. In other words, does a Jew break the law of Moses by paying taxes to Caesar? Well, why would, why would a Jew potentially think that it was unlawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Well, first of all, like I said, you know, here are the Jewish people in Palestine, and they're living under the Romans who are a pagan foreign oppressor who ruled over them and then charged them for the privilege of living in their own promised land, right? That's the first strike. But the second thing is that paying the tax was seen as potentially breaking the first and second commandments. Because the tax being discussed here is, is the poll tax, which the Romans required to be paid with their own currency. And as we know, that currency was called a denarius. And it just so happens that I have a picture of what a denarius looked like. If we could have that uh, come up, please. See, isn't that beautiful? There we go. Okay, there's the denarius that more than likely is in being discussed in this debate. And on the one side, you have an image of Tiberius Caesar with the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side, you have a representation of the goddess Pax, or peace, sitting on a throne or a chair with another Latin inscription which says, Pontifex Maxim, or high priest. Okay? So... You have an emperor who claims divinity and also claims to be the high priest who's requiring the payment of a tax with a coin like that bearing his image and the image of the goddess Pax. I don't think it's hard to see why many Jewish people wrestled with whether this is breaking those two commandments. You shall have no other gods besides me and you shall not make an idol or bow down to it. So on the surface, their question looks like you know, a legitimate theological question for debate, right? But it's really a diabolical attempt to destroy Jesus. We can turn that off now. Thank you. See, they know that their question is devastating. Okay, They know that they've forced Jesus to be between a rock and a hard place. And they think that no matter how he answers, they're going to be able to stick a fork in him because he's going to be done, Right? You see, if Jesus says, yes, it's lawful to pay the poll tax, what's going to happen? Well, the Pharisees know that his ministry is just about finished because the Jewish people despise Rome, they despise paying the tax, and a yes answer is going to make Jesus lose all credibility with the people and his popularity is going to sink like a 2,000-pound rock in the Sea of Galilee, right? But, on the other hand, if he says, no, it's not lawful to pay taxes, then the Herodians are going to take it from there, you see, because they're going to report Jesus to the Romans as being a revolutionary, as being an insurrectionist. And Rome is going to hunt him down, and they're going to arrest him, and more than likely they are going to execute him. See, their question 
from their perspective, is an inescapable no-win situation for Jesus and a triumphant win-win for them. Or so they thought. You see, they, they still, you would think by this time they would realize this, but they still don't realize who they're dealing with here, right? And they never see it coming. See, first Jesus exposes their charade and he calls them out on their evil motivations. In verse 18, it says, But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? You see, he knows their hearts and he knows what their true intentions are. He knows they're hypocrites and that they're being two-faced, that they're pretending to shower him with the honey of praise. But in reality, they're trying to skewer him with the poison of conspiracy. And then he stops them in their tracks. He says in verse 19 through 21, show me the coin for the tax. And they bring him the denarius, right? And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they tell him Caesar's. And he said, okay, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the thing, things that are God's. And the Pharisees' minions and the Herodians limp away with their tail between their legs, astonished and shocked by Jesus' response. Silence by the display of the divine wisdom and glory and power of Jesus. You see, it was a perfect answer. It was the perfect answer to avoid the devastating ditches on both sides of the road to destruction, right? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. For example, Caesar minted the coin. His image is on it. He's the one collecting the tax. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. That silenced the Herodians. But render unto God what is God's. Pay your denarius to Caesar, but give the worship that Caesar demands in that coin. That worship only belongs to God and give it to him. And that silenced the Pharisees. It was a brilliant answer. And they were overcome by kingdom shock. I hear a couple of applications for us, okay? I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this first one, but um, first one is pay your taxes, okay? You know, some Christians think we shouldn't, play, shouldn't pay taxes because, frankly, our government can use that money to support immoral things, right? But the interesting thing here is, is that Jesus says to pay your taxes despite, one, the blasphemous claims of the emperor whose image is on it, and two, despite the fact that, you know, almost certainly some of that money that, that they're collecting is going to go towards funding the whole pagan system of worship that is pervasive in Rome. So we really can't use that for a reason to not pay our taxes. But we should pay our taxes also because paying our taxes is part of submitting to governing authorities, which we're clearly taught to do. Just look at Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. But something else is going on here because the Greek verb that Jesus uses here indicates another reason. Because another way to translate render is to translate to pay back. And what Jesus seems to be implying is that paying taxes is actually paying back a debt which is owed. A debt which everyone under the Roman Empire is incurring, right? Because why? Because the Romans provided all kinds of services for those living under their rule, whether it was peace and security, whether it was building roads or building aqueducts. And so it was right to pay taxes in return for these services. Okay, so for all these reasons, Christians need to pay their taxes. So what I leave you with is, you know, render what is Loudon's to Loudon, 
Render what is Richmond to Richmond and Washington, D.C. to Washington, D.C., okay? But there's another part to this. Because we're to render unto God what is God's. And most people, because this is about paying taxes and money's involved, they're assuming that Jesus is referring to tithing. And most certainly, giving financially to the church is part of what we render to God. And like I mentioned earlier, you know, the context is also about worship. And of course, we should render our worship also to, as one of the things we give to God. But what, what are we really to render unto God? What are we to give to him? And the answer is everything. Everything. I mean, let me ask you a question. If taxes go to Caesar because his image is on the coin, then what are we to give to the one who created us in his image? If we're to pay taxes to Caesar because of what is owed to him, then what do we owe to the true emperor of the universe? I'll tell you what we owe. We owe all glory and honor and praise. We owe our deepest worship. We owe our total obedience. We owe our time. We owe our, our money. We owe our gifts. We owe our very lives to that emperor of the universe. Do you render everything that is God's to God? And let me ask you this. Let's talk about the things that you do render or give to God. I mean, what's your motivation for that? You know, what fuels your rendering or giving to God? Let's just take a silent heart poll here, okay? I don't want you to raise your hands. I don't want you to say anything. I just want you to listen and kind of reflect and, and, and search your heart about this, okay? How many of you have ever written your check for the Sunday offering begrudgingly? Me too. How many of you have come to church because you're supposed to and you don't feel like dealing with the flack if you don't come? Me too. How many of you sometimes sing when you're here on Sunday mornings not because your heart is in it, because you're afraid of what people are going to think if you don't? Or maybe you pray or you read your Bible because you don't want to deal with feeling guilty if you don't do it. Or maybe you volunteer or agree to help somebody out of obligation or because you feel pressured. Or maybe you obey God because you're afraid that if you don't, he won't like you as much. Me too, me too, me too, and me too. And the question is, are these the motives that God really wants from us, that he desires for us? Are these the things that God wants our rendering or our giving to flow out of? Obligation, guilt, fear, people-pleasing? I mean, next week a lawyer is going to ask Jesus what the greatest commandment is. You remember what he says? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. God wants us to render everything to him, but he wants it to flow and be soaked in our love for him. You know, when I think about these things, it, it saddens me because, you know, I know that the Holy Spirit lives in me, okay? And, and that I owe everything to God, but it saddens me how little I actually give to God. You know, I know that I am a new creature in Christ, right? But it saddens me 
how little love I really have for Christ. And I pray that the Holy Spirit, that, it, that his kindness and grace and mercy will lead me to repent about even this, that I don't grieve nearly enough for all those other things I just mentioned. You see, and I know, I know that all of you struggle with these things too, though I know for some of you it may be hard to admit it. And I also know that there are some of you who are sitting here right now, okay, more upset that one of your pastors is up here and telling you about how he struggles with these things more than you're upset over the fact that you struggle with these things. Brother or sister, if that's you this morning, can I just humbly suggest to you that you need a greater awareness of the depth of your own sin and a greater awareness of how much you need the grace of the gospel. I just humbly suggest that. I mean, if you were aware, more aware of these things, then you would not be as shocked and offended when I stand up here and confess my need of those things. You know, I'm not going to get up here and pretend like I have my act together, okay? I'm not going to get up here and pretend that because I'm a pastor, I'm, in, I'm somehow in less need of the gospel than you are. That would be a lie, and it's not true. In fact, I probably need more. I desperately need Jesus. And I need his forgiveness and his grace. And I need his Holy Spirit to work in my heart and to change me to be more like him. And I need to learn to cling more to his perfect righteousness than to my own. So, he's the one, Jesus, that you should be fixing your gaze on this morning. And not me. And that's who I point you towards. So my fellow strugglers, where do we go from here? Well, first of all, in faith, we keep striving to give everything to God, but we do so knowing that in this life, our motives are always going to be mixed and our love is always going to be weaker than it should be. But we rest in the truth that God is pleased with us and that he loves us because we are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, everything we offer, though imperfect, because it's offered perfectly, perfectly through Jesus, our big brother, it is seen as perfect. And it is acceptable. And it is pleasing to our Father in heaven. Just as he is pleased with us as his children. And secondly, we admit that we cannot conjure up more love for God in our own hearts. We just can't. We are dependent on the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, and we need to pray with expectation that God in his mercy and his grace and his kindness will change us, and we need to cry out for the day that we are changed, and perfection does come, and we don't struggle with these things, and we need to cry out and pray that that day comes sooner than later. Amen? Well, there's a lot more things that could be said. We have another passage to look at this morning. So we're going to look at 41 through 46. And don't worry, it's going to be a lot shorter than the first section, okay? Just in case you're panicking. Verses 41 through 46. Again, the Pharisees are gathered together. 
But certainly they aren't asking Jesus any questions anymore, are they? It looks like they've had enough of a shellacking to finally back off. But Jesus takes the initiative and turns the tables on them by asking them his own question. And remember, we're just a few days away from Jesus' crucifixion. So he's going to make sure there's no ambiguity about his identity. Okay, So he asks them this question in verse 42. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, these are kindergarten-level questions for the Pharisees. Okay, I mean, these are the experts in the Old Testament law. Okay, I mean, chances are every Jew in Palestine knows the answers to these questions. <clears throat> so the Pharisees are probably like, duh, Jesus, the son of David. I mean, everybody knew that. And again, you, you almost feel sorry for them, right? Because once again, they don't see it coming. Jesus is about to unleash another dose of kingdom shock, and they have no idea. And he does that in, in verses 44 through 45. He says, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Okay, Pharisees are probably tracking with him in the beginning. They know, you know, where Jesus is quoting from. That's from the Psalms, you know, our Psalm 110 to be exact. And they agree with him that David wrote this Psalm, right? And even that he was in the spirit, that is, it was divinely inspired, right? And I think that they probably also even saw this Psalm as referring to the future Christ. I mean, they never debate that point with Jesus, but what they are totally blindsided by is Jesus' last question. If, if the Christ is David's son, how can David call him Lord? You see, in that culture, a father never called his son Lord. He was the other way around. Descendants are not greater than those that came before him. So if Christ is the son of David, then why is David calling him Lord, first of all? Second of all, why would King David call the Christ Lord? I mean, who could be greater than King David, Israel's greatest king, right? I mean, no other man, no other king, no other Davidic heir could, could be greater than David where David calls him Lord. Unless the Christ was no mere man. You see, Jesus is trying to get the Pharisees to see that their Messiah was too small. You see, they got the part that the Christ was supposed to be king over Israel and the heir of David, but that, that fit their lens, you see, because they're being oppressed by Rome. Yes, Messiah, come, kick out these Romans, get them out of here, you know, rule over us, reestablish Israel's glory. But they missed that the Christ was to be a whole lot more. If you want to, turn to Psalm 110 with me, and we'll read part of this to see what I'm saying here. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Okay, so far so good. Davidic king, they can handle it, right? Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest 
forever after the order of Melchizedek. What? The Christ is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, a priest, a king, and a priest, and he's a priest and a king forever? What mere man can be a king and a priest forever? And he's in the order of Melchizedek, that mysterious figure that appears to Abraham, and Abraham tithes to him, right? Leading most people to think that that's a pre-incarnate form of, of Christ, right? Jesus is no mere man. And the Pharisees, who are the Old, Text, Old Testament scholars, missed it. He was much more than just a king. He was a priest, and he was a savior. See, they understood that Christ would be the human descendant of David, but they missed the fact that he was more than just a mere man. In fact, they missed that he was also to be God. And they shouldn't have missed that. I mean, consider Isaiah 9, okay? And you have heard this so many times, but again, these are the scholars in the Old Testament. Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. For us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's Isaiah prophesying about the future Messiah who's not only the heir of David, but he's also mighty God and everlasting father. The Messiah was more than just a mere man. They got the human part, but they, get, they missed the God part. They got the king part, but they missed the savior part. And what's tragic is not that the Pharisees didn't know these things. What's tragic is that when Jesus tried to teach them, they walked away in silence. See, twice now, Jesus had unleashed kingdom shock upon them. And twice now, his divine wisdom, power, and glory had rocked their world. Jesus had exposed them. He had humbled them. He had rebuked them. But he had also invited them. He had invited them to faith and repentance. He had called them to open their eyes and see what two blind men and one Canaanite woman had already seen and had confessed, and that was that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of David. Jesus had unleashed kingdom shock to lead them to kingdom awe, but they walked away in silence. So, what about you? What do you say about the Christ? How will you answer the most important question that you've ever been asked. Will you acknowledge him as king? Will you embrace your need of him to be your savior? How will you respond to this question whose answer could mean the difference between eternal life and eternal death? Will you respond with repentance? Will you in faith and trust follow Christ? Or will you simply walk away in silence? You know, whatever response you're leaning towards, please know that I would love to talk to you about these things after the service. So if you would give me that privilege, feel, please feel free to come up and talk to me. I'd love to 
have a conversation about that. But also, what about you, my brothers and sisters in Christ? You who already confess Jesus as the Christ. Is your Messiah, like the Pharisees, is your Messiah too small? Is King Jesus sovereign and powerful enough in your eyes to meet whatever need you may have, to be with you and meet you in whatever circumstances you're facing right now? Are the words of prophet Jesus treasured by you, treasured enough that you listen to the truth that he speaks, even when he targets those dark and uncomfortable areas that you really don't want to deal with? Is this is the perfect sacrifice of priest Jesus sufficient enough that that gnawing, nagging voice saying that you still have to work to earn God's love and his approval is silenced by the cry of the Savior on the cross saying, it is finished. If your Messiah is too small, ponder the mighty work of salvation that he wrought on the cross. If you struggle with seeing your debt to God, then consider the price that Jesus paid in giving it all for you. If you long for a heart that loves God more deeply, then remember Jesus, God in the flesh, allowing himself to be mocked and spit upon and whipped and beaten. Remember the blood that flowed from his crown of thorns and his pierced hands and feet. Remember the pain and the shame that he endured, bearing the full wrath and judgment of eternal damnation. Remember him dying in order that he might conquer the grave. It was, it was love that made Jesus embrace the cross. It was love that held him there. Love for rebels and God-haters and sinners, and wretches like you and like me. I mean, how can we not love a God like this? How can we not give him everything we've got? Please pray with me. Oh, Father, we are in such need of your grace. You are so worthy of so many things and we fall so short of rendering, of giving those things to you. And I pray, first of all, that you would forgive us. That you would forgive us. And I thank you. I thank you for the perfect righteousness of Christ that tells us that you love us and you accept us even though we struggle with all these things and we fall so far short. We fell short, but he did it all. For us. And I pray that these words would not be something we just fill our heads with this morning, but I pray that you would use them to soften our hearts and to change us. Help us to love you more. Send your Holy Spirit to change us and help us to give more and more of what you rightly deserved back to you. And I pray these things in the name of our wonderful and marvelous Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit 
you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Brothers and sisters, go in peace.